Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Choose from a variety of accessories, like our cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited-time offer ends November 28th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader, Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 22. Shrike. Had the stalker only just arrived, or had he been standing watching them squabble, dark and still on the stone-strewn hillside, like a stone himself? He took a step forward, and the damp grass smouldered where he set his foot. They are mine. The pirates swung round, Max's machine gun spraying streams of tracer at the Iron Man, while Mungo's hand cannon punched black holes in his armour, and Ames blazed away with his revolver. Caught in the web of gunfire, Shrike stood swaying for a moment. Then, slowly, like a man walking into a strong wind, he started forward. Bullets sparked off his armour and his coat tore away in rags and tatters. The holes the cannon made spewed something that might have been blood, might have been oil. He stretched out his arms and an iron claw was ripped away and another. Then he reached Mags and she made a choking sound and went backwards into the bracken and down. Ames flung down his gun and started to run, but Shrike was suddenly behind him and he stopped short, gawping at a handful of red spikes that sprouted from his chest. Mungo's gun was empty. He threw it aside and pulled his sword out, but before he could swing it, Shrike had grabbed him by the hair and wrenched his head back and severed his neck with one scything blow. Tom, said Hester, run! Shrike flung the head aside and walked forward, and Tom ran. He didn't want to. He knew there was no point and that he knew he should stand by Hester, but his legs had other ideas. His whole body wanted only to be away from the terrible dead thing that was coming towards him down the hill. Then the ground gave way under him. He plunged into cold mud and fell, rolled over and came to rest against an outcrop of stone on the edge of the same mire that had swallowed Chrysler Peavy. He looked back. The stalker stood among the sprawling bodies. Airhaven was overhead, testing its engines one by one, and its lights kindled cold reflections on his moon-silvered skull. Hester stood facing him, bravely holding her ground. Tom thought, she's trying to save me. She's buying time so that I can get away. But I can't just let him kill her, I can't. Ignoring the countless voices of his body that were still screaming at him to run, he started to crawl back up the hill. Hester... Sure, he heard Shrike say, and the voice slurred and caught like a faulty recording. Steam hissed from holes in the stalker's chest, and black ichor dripped from him and bubbled at the corners of his mouth. Are you going to kill me? the girl asked. Shrike nodded his great head just once. For a little while. What do you mean? The long mouth dragged sideways, smiling. We are two of a kind, you and I. I knew it as soon as I found you that day on the shore. After you left me, 
the loneliness. I had to go, Shrike, she whispered. I wasn't part of your collection. You were very dear to me. Something's wrong with him, thought Tom, inching up the hill. Stalkers weren't meant to have feelings. He remembered what he had taught about the resurrected men all going mad. Was that seaweed hanging from the ducts on Shrike's head? Had his brains gone rusty? Sparks were flickering inside his chest behind the bullet holes. Hester, Shrike grated, falling heavily to his knees so that his face was at the same level as hers. Croom has made me a promise. His servants have learned the secret of my construction. Fear prickled the back of Tom's neck. I will take your body to London, Shrike told the girl. Croom will resurrect you as an iron woman. Your flesh will be replaced with steel. Your nerves with wire. Your thoughts with electricity. You will be beautiful. You will be my companion for all time. Shrike, Hester snorted. Croom won't want me resurrected. Why not? No one will recognise you in your new body. You will have no memories, no feelings. You will be no threat to him. But I will remember for you, my daughter. We will hunt down Valentine together. Hester laughed. A strange, mad, terrible sound that set Tom's teeth on edge as he reached the place where Mungo's body lay. The heavy sword was still clamped in the pirate's fist and Tom reached out and started prizing it free. Glancing up, he saw that Hester had taken a step closer to the stalker. She tilted her head back, baring her throat, readying herself for his claws. All right, she said, but let Tom go. He must die, insisted Shrike. It is part of my bargain with Croom. You will not remember him when you wake in your new body. Oh, please, Shrike, no, begged Hester. Tell Croom he escaped or drowned or something, died somewhere in the outcountry and you couldn't bring him back, please. Tom clung to the sword, its hilt still clammy with Mungo's sweat. Now that the moment had come, he was so scared he could barely breathe, let alone stand up and confront the stalker. I can't do this he thought. I'm a historian, not a warrior. But he couldn't desert Hester, not while she was bargaining away her life for his. He was close enough to see the fear in her eye and the sharp glitter of Shrike's claws as he reached for her. Very well, the stalker said. Gently, he stroked Hester's face with the tips of the blades. The boy can live. The hand drew back to strike. Hester shut her eye. Shrike! howled Tom, hurling himself up and forward with the sword held out stiffly in front of him, feeling the green light spill across his face as Shrike spun, hissing to meet him. An iron arm lashed out, hurling him backwards. He felt a searing pain in his chest and for a moment he was sure that he had been torn in two. But it was the stalker's forearm that struck him, not the bladed hand, and he landed in one piece and rolled over, gasping at the pain, expecting to see Shrike lunge at him and then nothing ever again. 
but Shrike was on the ground, and Hester was bending over him, and as Tom watched, the stalker's eye flickered, and something exploded inside him with a flash and a crack and a coil of smoke leaking upwards. The hilt of the sword jutted from one of the gashes in his chest, crackling with blue sparks. Oh, Shrike, whispered Hester. Shrike carefully sheathed his claws so that she could take his hand. Unexpected memories fluttered through his disintegrating mind, and he suddenly knew who he had been before they dragged him onto the resurrection slab to make a stalker of him. He wanted to tell Hester, and he lifted his great iron head towards her, but before he could force the words out, his death was upon him, and it was no easier this time than the last. The great iron carcass settled into stillness, and smoke blew away on the wind. Down in the valley, horns were blowing, and Tom could see a party of riders starting up the hill from the caravanserai, alerted by the sound of gunfire. They carried spears and flaming torches, and he didn't think they would be friendly. He tried to push himself upright, but the pain in his chest almost made him faint. Hester heard him groan and swung towards him. "'What did you do that for?' she shouted. Tom could not have been more surprised if she had slapped him. "'He was going to kill you!' he protested. "'He was going to make me like him!' screamed Hester, hugging Shrike. "'Didn't you hear what he said? "'He was going to make me everything I ever wanted. "'No memories, no feelings. "'Imagine Valentine's face when I came for him. "'Oh, why do you keep interfering?' "'He would have turned you into a monster!' Tom heard his own voice rising to a shout as all his pain and fear flickered into anger. I'm already a monster, she shrieked. No, you're not. Tom managed to heave himself to his knees. You're my friend, he shouted. I hate you, I hate you, Hester was yelling. Well, I care about you whether you like it or not, Tom screamed. Do you think you're the only person who's lost their mum and dad? I feel just as angry and lonely as you, but you don't see me going around wanting to kill people and trying to get myself turned into a stalker. You're just a rude, self-pitying... But the rest of what he had been planning to tell her died away in an astonished sob because suddenly he could see the town below him and Airhaven and the approaching riders as clearly as if it were the middle of the day. He saw the stars fade. He saw Hester's face freeze in mid-shout with spittle trailing from the corners of her mouth. He saw his own wavering shadow dancing on the blood-soaked grass. Above the crags, the night sky was filling with an unearthly light, as if a new sun had risen from the outcountry, somewhere far away towards the north. Chapter 23. Medusa Catherine watched, transfixed, as the dome of St Paul's split along black seams and the sections folded outwards like petals. Something inside was rising slowly up a central tower and opening as it rose, an orchid of cold white metal. The grumble of vast hydraulics echoed across the square and shivered through the fabric of the engineerium. Medusa! whispered Beavis Pod, standing beside behind her in the open doorway. They haven't really been repairing the cathedral at all. They've built Medusa inside St Paul's. Guild's persons? They turned. An engineer was standing behind them. What are you doing? he snapped. This gantry is off limits to everyone but L Division. He stopped, staring at Catherine, and she saw that Beavis was staring too, his dark eyes wide and horrified. 
For a moment, she couldn't imagine what was wrong with him. Then she understood. The rain. She had forgotten about the guild mark he had painted so carefully between her eyebrows, and now it was trickling down her face in thin red rills. What in Quirk's name? the engineer gasped. Kate, run! shouted Beavis, pushing the engineer aside, and Catherine ran and heard the man's angry shout behind her as he fell. Then Beavis was with her, grabbing her by the hand, darting left and right down empty corridors until a stairway opened ahead. Down one flight and then another, and behind them they heard more shouts and the sudden jarring peal of an alarm bell. Then they were at the bottom, in a small lobby, somewhere at the rear of the engineerium. There were big glass doors opening onto top tier, and two guildsmen standing guard. There's an intruder, panted Beavis, pointing back the way they had come. On the third floor, I think he's armed. The guildsmen were already startled by the sudden ringing of the alarm bell. They exchanged shocked glances, then one started up the stairs, dragging a gas pistol from his belt. Beavis and Catherine seized their chance and hurried on. My colleague's been hurt, explained Beavis, pointing at Catherine's red-streaked face. I'm taking her round to the infirmary. The door swung open and spilled them out into the welcome dark. They ran as fast as they could into the shadow of St Paul's, then stopped and listened. Catherine could hear the heavy throbbing of machinery and a closer, louder throb that was the beat of her own heart. A man's voice was shouting orders somewhere and there was a crash of armoured feet coming closer. Beefeaters, she whimpered. They'll want to see our papers. They'll take off my hood. Oh, Beavis, I should never have asked you to get me in there. Run, leave me. Beavis looked at her and shook his head. He had defied his guild and risked everything to help her and he wasn't about to abandon her now. Oh, Cleo, help us, breathed Catherine, and something made her glance towards Paternoster Square. There was old Chudley Pomeroy, standing on the Guildhall steps, with his arms full of envelopes and folders staring upward. She had never been so happy to see anyone in her whole life, and she ran to him, dragging Beavis Pod along with her and calling softly, Mr Pomeroy. He looked blankly at them, then gasped in surprise as Catherine pulled the stupid hood off and he saw her face and her sweat-draggled hair. Miss Valentine, what in Quirk's name is happening? Look what those damned interfering engineers have done to St Paul's. She looked up. The metal orchid was open to its full extent now, casting a deep shadow on the square below. Only it was not an orchid. It was a cowled, flaring thing like the hood of some enormous cobra and it was swinging round to point at Panzerstadt Bay Ruth. Medusa, she said. Who? asked Chudley Pomeroy. A bug siren wailed. Oh, please, she cried, turning to the plump historian. They're after us. If they catch Beavis, I don't know what will happen to him. Bless him. He did not say why or what have you done wrong, just took Catherine by one arm and Beavis pod by the other and hurried them towards the Guildhall garage where his bug was waiting. As the chauffeur helped them into it, a squad of beefeaters came clattering past, but they paid no attention to Pomeroy and his companions. He hid Catherine's coat and hood behind his seat and made Be Beavis Pod crouch down on the floor of the bug. Then he squeezed himself in beside Catherine on the back seat and, let, and said, Let me do the talking, as the bug went purring out into Paternoster Square.
there was a throng of people outside the elevator station, gazing up in amazement at the thing which had sprouted from St Paul's. Beefeaters stopped the bug while a young engineer peered in. Pomeroy opened a vent in the glastic lid and said, Is there a problem, guildsman? A break-in at the engineerium? Anti-traction is terrorists. <laughs> well, don't look at us laughed Pomeroy. I've been working in my office at Guild Hall all evening and Miss Valentine has been kindly helping me to sort out some papers. All the same, sir, I'll have to search your bug. Oh, really, cried Pomeroy. Do we look like terrorists? Haven't you got better things to do on the last night of London with a dirty great conurbation bearing down on us? I shall complain to the council in the strongest possible terms. It's outrageous. The man looked uncertain, then nodded and stepped aside to let Pomeroy's chauffeur steer the bug into a waiting freight elevator. As the doors closed behind it, Pomeroy let out a sigh of relief. Oh, those damned engineers. No offence, Apprentice Pod. None taken, said Beavis's muffled voice from somewhere below. Thank you, whispered Catherine. Oh, thank you for helping us. Don't mention it chuckled Pomeroy. I'm always happy to do anything that upsets Croom and his lackeys. Thousands of years old, that cathedral, and they go and turn it into a into whatever they've turned it into without so much as a buy your leave. He looked nervously at Catherine and saw that she wasn't really listening. Gently, he asked, but whatever have you done to stir them up, Miss Valentine? You don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but if you and your friend are in trouble, and if there's anything an old coot like me can do... Catherine felt helpless tears prickling her eyes. Please, she whispered, could you just take us home? Of course. They sat in awkward silence as the bug drove through the streets of Tier 1 into the park. The darkness was full of people running and shouting, pointing up towards the cathedral. But there were other runners too, engineer security men leading squads of beefeaters. When the bug stopped outside Cleo House, Pomeroy climbed out to walk Catherine to the door. She whispered a heartfelt goodbye to Beavis and followed him. Could you take Apprentice Pod to an elevator station? she asked. He needs to get back to the gut. Pomeroy looked worried. I don't know, Miss Valentine, he sighed. You've seen how het up the engineers are. If I know them, they'll have all their factories and dormitory blocks locked down tight by now and security checks in progress. They may have already worked out that he's missing, along with two coats and hoods. You mean, he can't go back? Catherine felt dizzy at the thought of what she had done to poor Pod. Not ever. Pomeroy nodded. Then I'll keep him with me at Cleo House, Catherine decided. He's not a stray cat, my dear. But when Father gets home, he'll be able to sort everything out, won't he? Explain to the Lord Mayor that it was nothing to do with Beavis. Mm, it's possible, agreed Pomeroy. Your father is very close to the Guild of Engineers, a damn sight too close, some people say. But I don't think Cleo House is the place to keep your friends. I'll take him down to the museum. There's plenty of room for him there and the engineers won't be able to search for him without giving us warning first. Would you really do that? asked Catherine, afraid that she was dragging yet another innocent person into trouble. But after all, it would only be for a few days until father came home. Then everything would be all right. Oh, thank you, she said happily, standing on tiptoe to kiss Pomeroy's cheek. Thank you. Pomeroy blushed and beamed at her and started to say something else, but although his mouth moved, she could not hear the words. Her head was filled with a strange sound, 
a whining roar that grew louder and louder until she realised that it wasn't inside her at all but pounding down from somewhere overhead. "'Look!' shouted the historian, pointing upwards. Her fear had made her forget St Paul's. Now, looking up at top tier, she saw the cobra hood of Medusa start to crackle with violet lightning. The hair on her arms and the back of her neck prickled, and when she reached for Pomeroy's hand, pale sparks jumped between the tips of her fingers and his robes. "'Mr Pomeroy!' she shouted. "'What's happening?' "'Great quirk!' the historian cried. "'What have those fools awoken now?' Ghostly spheres of light detached themselves from the glowing machine and drifted down over Circle Park like fire balloons. Lightning danced around the spires of the Guild Hall. The rushing, whining roar grew louder and louder, higher and higher, until even with her hands clapped over her ears, Catherine felt she could not bear a moment more of it. Then, Quite suddenly, a stream of incandescent energy burst from the cobra's hood and stretched northwards, a snarling, spitting cat and nine tails lashing out to lick at the upperworths of Panzerstadt Beirut. The night split apart and went rushing away to hide in the corners of the sky. For a second, Catherine saw the tears of the distant conurbation limned in fire and then it was gone. A pulse of brightness lifted from the earth, blinding white, then red, a pillar of fire rushing up in silence into the sky, and across the flame-lit snow the sound wave came rolling. A long, low, drawn-out boom as if a great door had slammed shut somewhere in the depths of the earth. The beam snapped off, plunging Circle Park into sudden darkness, and in the silence she heard Dog howling madly inside the house, Great work, Pomeroy whispered. All those poor people. No, Catherine heard herself say. Oh, no, no, no. She started to run across the garden, staring towards the lightning-flecked cloud which wreathed the wreckage of the conurbation. From Circle Park and all the observation platforms came the sound of wordless voices, and she thought at at first that they were crying out in horror the way she wanted to, But no, they were cheering, cheering, cheering. Chapter 24, An Agent of the League The strange light in the north had died away and the long thunderclap had spent itself, echoing and re-echoing from the walls of the old volcano. Mastering their panicked horses, the men of the Black Island came on along the margins of the bog amid a drumroll of galloping hooves and the torn silk sound of wind-blown torches. Tom raised his hands and shouted, We're friends, not pirates, travellers from London. But the horsemen were in no mood to listen, even the few who understood. They had been hunting survivors from the sunken suburb all day. They had seen what PV's pirates had done in the fishing villages along the western shore and now they shouted to each other in their own language and galloped closer, raising their bows. A grey-feathered arrow thudded into the ground at Tom's feet, making him stumble backwards. We're friends, he shouted again. The leading man drew his sword, but another rider spurred in front of him, shouting something in the island tongue, then in English, I want them alive! It was Anna Fang. She reined in her horse, swung herself down from the saddle and ran towards Tom and Hester, her coat flapping against the firelight like a red red flag. 
She wore a sword in a long scabbard on her back, and on her breast Tom saw a bronze badge in the shape of a broken wheel, the symbol of the Anti-Traction League. Tom! Hester! She hugged them one by one, smiling her sweetest smile. I thought you were dead. I sent Lindstrom and Yasmina to look for you the morning after the fight at Airhaven. They found your balloon wrecked in those horrible marshes and said you must be dead, dead. I wanted to search for your poor bodies, but the Jenny had been damaged and I was so busy helping guide the town down to the repair yard here. But we said prayers for you and made funeral sacrifices to the gods of the sky. Do you think we could ask them for a refund? Tom kept quiet. His chest was hurting so that he could hardly breathe, let alone speak. Anyway, the badge on the aviatrix's coat told him that Peavy's stories had been true. She was an agent of the League. He wasn't charmed any more by her kindness and her tinkling laugh. She shouted something over her shoulder to the waiting riders and a couple jumped down from their ponies and led them forward, staring in wonder at Shrike's corpse. I have to leave you for a while, she explained. I'm taking the Jenny north to see what devilry has lit up the sky. The islanders will look after you. Can you ride? Tom had never even seen a horse before, let alone sat on one, but he was so dazed with pain and shock that he could not protest as they heaved him up into the saddle of a shaggy little pony and started to lead it downhill. He looked back for Hester and saw her scowling at him, hunched in the saddle of a second pony. Then the knot of riders closed about her, and he lost sight of her in the narrow, crowded streets of the caravanserai, where whole families were standing outside their homes to stare at the northern sky, and dust and litter whirled between the buildings as Airhaven dipped overhead, trying out its rotors one by one. There was a small stone house where someone found a seat for him, and a man in black robes and a big white turban who examined his bruised chest. Broken! he said cheerfully. I am Ibrahim Nazgul, physician. Four of your ribs are quite smashed up. Tom nodded, giddy with the pain and shock, but starting to feel lucky that he was still alive and glad that these people weren't the anti-tractionist savages he had been expecting. Dr Nazgul wound bandages around his chest and his wife brought a steaming bowl of mutton stew and helped Tom eat, spooning it into his mouth. Lantern light lapped at the corners of the room, and in the doorway the doctor's children stood staring at Tom with huge dark eyes. You are a hero, explained the doctor. They say you fought with an iron gin who would have killed us all. Tom blinked sleepily at him. He had almost forgotten the squalid little battle at the edge of the bog. The details were fading quickly, like a dream. I killed Shrike, he thought. All right, so he was dead already, technically, but he was still a person. He had hopes and plans and dreams, and I put a stop to them all. He didn't feel like a hero. He felt like a murderer, and the feeling of guilt and shame stayed with him, staining his dreams as his head drooped over the bowl of stew, and he slipped away into sleep. Then he was in another room, in a soft bed, and there was a blustery blue and white sky beyond the window and a patch of sunlight coming and going on the lime-washed wall. "'How are you feeling, stalker killer?' a voice asked. Miss Fang stood over him, watching him with the gentle smile of an angel in an old picture. Tom said, "'Everything hurts.' "'Well enough to travel? 
that Jenny Hanover is waiting, and I would like to be away before sundown. You can eat once we're airborne. I've made toad in the hole with real toad. Where's Hester? Tom asked groggily. Oh, she's coming too. He sat up, wincing at the sharp pain in his chest and the memory of all that had happened. I'm not going anywhere with you, he said. The aviatrix laughed as if she thought he was joking, then realised he wasn't and sat down on the bed looking concerned. Tom, have I done something to upset you? You work for the League, he said angrily. You're a spy, no better than Valentine. You only helped us because you hoped we'd tell you things about London. Miss Fang's smile faded entirely. Tom, she said gently, I helped you because I like you. And if you had seen your family slave to death aboard a ruthless city, might you not have decided to help the League in its fight against municipal Darwinism? She reached out to brush the tousled hair away from his forehead, and Tom remembered something he had forgotten, a time when he was little and very ill, and his mother had sat with him like this. But the badge of the League was still on Miss Fang's breast, and the wound of Valentine's betrayal was still raw. He would not let himself be tricked by smiles and kindness again. You kill people, he said, pushing her hand away. You sank Marseille. If I had not, it would have attacked the Hundred Islands, killing or enslaving hundreds more people than I drowned with my little bomb. And you strangled the, the raisin of somewhere or other. The Sultana of Palau Penang. The smile came flickering back. I didn't strangle her. What a horrible suggestion. I simply broke her neck. She let amphibious raft cities refuel at her island, so she had to be disposed of. Tom didn't see that it was anything to smile about. He remembered Rayland's men slumped in the shadows of the air key at Staines and Miss Fang telling him they were just unconscious. I may be no better than Valentine she went on, but there is a difference between us. Valentine tried to kill you and I want to keep you alive. So, will you come with me? Where to? asked Tom suspiciously. To Shanguo, she replied. I'm willing to bet that what lit up the sky last night had something to do with the thing Valentine took from Hester's mother. And I have learned that London is heading straight for the shield wall. Tom was amazed. Could the Lord Mayor really have found a way to breach the League's borders? If so, it was the best news for years. As for going to Shanguo, that was the heart of the Anti-Traction League, the last place in the world a decent Londoner should go. I won't do anything to help you harm London, he told her. It's still my home. Of course, she replied. But if the wall is about to be attacked, don't you think the people who live behind it deserve a chance to get away. I'm going to warn them of their danger and I want Hester to come with me and tell her side of the story. And Hester will only go if you come too. Tom laughed and found that it hurt. I don't think so, he said. Hester hates me. Nonsense, giggled Miss Fang. She likes you very much. Did she not spend half the night telling me how kind you have been? And how wonderfully brave you were, killing that machine man. Did she? 
Tom blushed, feeling suddenly proud. He didn't think he would ever get used to Hester Shaw and her seesawing moods. Nevertheless, she was the closest thing he had to a friend in this huge, confusing world, and he still remembered how she had pleaded with Shrike for his life. Wherever she was going, he had to go too, even into the savage heartland of the League, even to Shangguo. All right, he said. I'll come. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 